Wow, thanks so much, David and band, for preparing our hearts this morning, leading us into the presence of the Lord. Isn't it great to worship God? Join together with brothers and sisters of like faith, sing the songs that uh, point us towards faith and hope and love in Him. Open the Word of God to be reminded of His Word that first came to us long, long ago. Uh, over the last several weeks, Jamie and I have been unpacking boxes and moving furniture and then unpacking more boxes and moving more furniture and getting, kind of getting things situated in our new home. We were in our last home for eight and a half years. After eight and a half years, things kind of pile up around you. And uh, we have taken this opportunity to kind of, I don't know, reset or reorganize our life and begin to order it for the next eight and a half years or however long God decides to leave us in this status. In the last week or so, we've begun opening up those boxes that have portraits, pictures, artwork. We haven't hung them immediately. We've just begun to kind of lay them at the foot of the wall there, looking around where they might go in this new home. We knew where they went in the last home, but where will they fit here? Where's the picture of our wedding going to fit? Where's it going to hang? Picture of our children. Where are the pictures that have been given to us through the years by church friends and family friends and just people we've known to remember them and to pictures they've given to honor us. We've looked around at where they're going to be and we've hung them or we've prepared to hang them and I, I envision that in a few weeks after we've hung them where we think they go, they'll be taken down and hung somewhere else as the house kind of begins to settle in. Among the things that we have, we, we have a lot of things I, I think that were probably purchased for us at some of the Christian bookstores, uh, kind of faith pictures. And some of those hang in my office and some of those will hang in our bedrooms and our living area. Uh, we have one piece of art that would in some way indicate that it's artistic. What I mean by that is it's got a famous name on it. And it's not expensive, uh, it's not an original, but it's one of those Thomas Kincaid portraits. How many of you have a Thomas Kincaid portrait or print hanging in your house? Just kind of raise your hand if you will. The stats say that one in 20 Americans have a Thomas Kincaid hanging in their house. That's a lot of pictures. It's a lot of paintings. A lot of those aren't originals, of course. A lot of those are, are reprints. Thomas Kincaid died in April of this year, but he was known as the painter of light. I brought a few pictures here tonight or this, this morning to show you some of the things that he painted. There's a beautiful one in, in Central Park that he painted. One there in a chapel. He's famous for the churches that he painted. Cottage. Uh, this is maybe the one that I think of first when I think of Thomas Kincaid. It's just a, a beautiful kind of pastoral setting and the light just pops out of the windows and through the door and even off of the light fixture there. It's a beautiful one. A variety of things he did for us. There's a, a chapel I don't know if it'll ever snow like that in Texas, but we can imagine that being somewhere else in this great country of ours, a church with a horse and buggy. We just got back from a week at Disney World. That's Cinderella's Castle. And uh, there's even light at Cinderella's Castle there that Thomas Kincaid was able to find, uh, as well as a few other, Pinocchio and his uh, set there. And uh, a beautiful one there for the 50th anniversary of Disney. He's the painter of light. Look how the light pops off of the things that he paints the portraits that he lays out there. Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light, and there's a picture of the cross. 
you probably know that Kincaid grew up or has some connection in his background to the Nazarene church. That earlier in his life, he was connected to and a part of the Church of Nazarene in Central California or maybe Northern California there where he grew up. I have in my mind, my imagination, that somewhere at a VBX or at a Sunday school class or a camp, somewhere along the way, the light of Christ was introduced to him in such a way that it, it went from his, his heart to his head to his fingertips. And all along the way throughout his life, this artistic ability that God had given him allowed him to paint in such a way to inspire people, to not just get people to purchase his portraits, but get people to look at the things he painted, the things he imagined first and then put on canvas with paint and, and canvas, and to be inspired by the very pictures that are there, pictures of cottages and of a cross and of Disney World and other places. You can just imagine all the things you've seen painted and produced by the hand and artistic ability of Thomas Kincaid, the painter of light. This morning, I'm going to preach about the prophets, continuing the series that your pastoral staff has been involved in here for the last few weeks. And it's Route 66. I like this uh, bulletin cover here and the way it kind of lays out an introduction, kind of a, a, a line, if you will, of the way that Scripture has worked and Scripture comes to us. Uh, beginning first in Genesis and moving all through the life and story of Israel to the life and times of Jesus our Lord into the days, the early days of the new church and even beyond, pointing towards this very day in the, in the book of Revelation and some of the other epistles we find in the New Testament. The prophets are, in a similar way, charged with the same thing that Thomas Kincaid may be found touched to do. Not to paint, but to produce light. Or more than produce light, to speak about the light in their lives that God had placed and was wanting to show to the people that they were charged to preach to, to lead, and to care for. Now, if you were to open up your index in the front of your Bible, you would find that there are a few prophets, not just one. You would be wise to say, Thank be, thanks be to God that he's not going to preach a little bit on every one of the prophets this morning. I'll, I'll pick a prophet here in just a moment and go to him. But uh, here's the order of the prophets, if we were to read them and see how they go. From Isaiah to Jeremiah, to Lamentations, to Ezekiel, to Daniel, to Hosea, to Joel, to Amos, to Obadiah, to Jonah, to Micah, to Nahum, Habakkuk, Zephaniah, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi. Now, every one of these prophets had particular agendas or particular messages that God had given them to share. They were speaking to a particular people in a particular time with particular problems surrounding them. And if they did not see or understand immediately the problems that were all around them, they believed in faith that if God had given them a message, something was about to happen or something was not too far down the road that they needed to speak to and tell the people about. They spoke during a time of Israel's decline, a time of their exile into Babylon, and even pointing towards a time when they would be gathered back and God would begin to work in their lives in a new and a fresh way to restore the very things that were taken from them from the peoples who invaded and made them exiles, prisoners, slaves in a foreign land. There are three major prophets and 12 minor prophets. Isaiah, and Jeremiah, and Ezekiel are the majors, and then that group of 12 that are the minors, if you will. How, how would you like to, to get to heaven and find out that you've been labeled, your work has been labeled minor? 
Do you think there's a discussion going on right now among these group of people saying, wait a minute, how did you get so much territory and fame and credit for what was taking place and what we were saying? The prophets offer to us or have given us about a third of the Old Testament, about a third of that material. And I would say to you that, that we should not think of one as more important than the other or even as one more major or minor. Those are or ways that the commentators and the editors have arranged and considered the material. But I believe that anybody who God has raised up and called to speak a word into the issues of our day, that person is important. Not just to the, in the eyes of God, but to the ministry of the church, to the development and growth and maturity of our faith. So whether they wrote just a little bit and were considered minor, or wrote in an expansive way and are credited as being great major prophets from old, we should be careful to heed the words, I guess first hear the words, of each of them, then heed the words, apply them to our lives and allow them to speak to us in our situation. Because I would tell you that the prophetic material, the things they said, although we are not in Israel, we don't live in a, in a place where there's a wall around the city and we call it Jerusalem and we celebrate the festivals and feasts like they did in their time, I would tell you, I believe that some of the very things that threaten their life and their faith we experience today. They're threats to us. They're issues in our faith. They're challenges to the way that we follow God and obey God and allow God to lead us. And it's not just true of that time and our time. It's been true in every era, in every situation, in every place and pulpit all along the way. That's the nature of the conflict of the sin of the world and the grace of God. So the prophets come to us and they're speaking to us in a powerful, pertinent way. Not just to Israel, not just to Judah, not just to people who are waiting to be conquered and captured, and not just to people who are being taken into exile as slaves and serving and waiting for God to do something, but for you and for me, the word of God is true and real and relevant. It'd be a great place to either think something like, hmm, that's good, or amen, brother. That's exactly the way we need to picture the word of God. We need to value and embrace the word of God. Well, I'm not going to preach on all the prophets. I'm going to preach on one of the prophets this morning. And I guess if you're going to preach on one of the prophets, you might as well preach on the prince of the prophets, as he's been known in some ways through the ages. Isaiah. Now, Thomas Kincaid is the painter of light, but I would like to tell you this morning that I believe that Isaiah is the prophet of light. It doesn't mean that his entire life was, was easy and a illuminated and, and everything seemed to be like a Disney picture or a pastoral setting and Isaiah just kind of preached and enjoyed his time reading and drinking coffee and living the easy life. But the very message, the very way in which God was revealing himself to Isaiah to then speak to the people in his day was very much in, in line with the light that shines through the paint pen of Thomas Kincaid or shone through his paint pen, his paint stick. That light that came through that venue came through the voice of Isaiah to the people then and the people now to get ready for what God was about to do and embrace what God is already doing and to look forward to what God was going to do in a new day, in another day, in a new setting. Isaiah means the Lord saves or the Lord is my salvation. That'd be a great name to hang on your child, wouldn't it? 
your name will be known, the Lord saves. That would immediately kind of designate the future of that child, where they sat at the lunch table at school and how they assimilated into the soccer team or the baseball team. If this kid is the Lord saves, I, we want to make sure that he is in a place of priority, that he, he is revered in such a way. Isaiah's name was the Lord saves. A couple of interesting things about the book of Isaiah before we, we kind of surf through some of the things that, that I think are important to this. There's 66 chapters in Isaiah. Now, let me just say, Isaiah didn't number them 1, 2, 3, 4, 66. These are the way they've been edited through the years to fit into our Bible and to pass through the internet to our PDAs this morning to organize and to set it in our viewing. But there are 66 chapters to Isaiah. And how many books of the Bible there are? 66. Here's another little interesting tidbit. You can divide Isaiah in, in two ways, and some would argue you can divide it in three ways. The first 39 chapters dealing with the judgment of God, the warnings of God, the revelation of God to Isaiah and to the people of Jerusalem. And then the last 27 chapters dealing with God's promise to restore and bring justice and give Israel a new day. Now, 39 and 27. How many books are in the Old Testament? 39. How many are in the New Testament? 27. Interesting the way that some of these things begin to fold out. I, I think not necessarily to send us a secret message, but to keep us in mind of the Word of God in a variety of ways, in a variety of settings, with a variety of messages for the need of our day, in our time, in our situation. Isaiah's image throughout all of his writing is that God's salvation is a creating sense of light. He is speaking to us. He is He's preaching to us. He's sharing with us as he did to his people. That salvation is, is for creation. Uh, is, I'm sorry, the salvation of God is created and shown through a spirit or a word of light. Now, I've got a, several scriptures that I just want to roll off to you this morning. And I'll get to one and I'll, I'll work with it in a little more detail. Isaiah chapter 2. Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us concerning his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem, and he will judge between the nations and will render decisions for many peoples. And they will hammer their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not lift up sword against nation, and never again will they learn war. Come, house of Jacob, and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us walk in the salvation of the Lord. Isaiah 9, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. Salvation will shine on them. We often read that one during Advent season, during the Christmas season, don't we? Whether it's lighting a candle or preaching it as a, as a theme, a light is coming. And that light is Jesus Christ. Isaiah 42, thus says God the Lord who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who give breath to the people on it, and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring out prisoners from the dungeon, and those who dwell in darkness from 
the prison. I'm going to appoint you as salvation to the nations. A good theme for missions preaching, wouldn't it be? That we're not just there to do things, but we are there to tell things and to share things and to call on the presence of God to save those things, those people that need to be saved. We are part of those people, by the way. Isaiah 45, I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I will gird you, though you've not known me, that men may know from the rising to the setting of the sun that there is no one besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. The one forming light and creating darkness, causing well-being and creating calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. The one creating, offering, extending salvation. Isaiah 60, arise, shine for your light has come. Your salvation has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness will cover the earth and deep darkness the peoples. But the Lord will rise upon you and his glory will appear upon you. Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. I wish Kincaid could paint a picture of that. Of nations coming to the salvation of God. Kings bowing and seeing the validity of God's salvation for them and for their people and for their kingdom. Isaiah chapter 60 verse 19 and 20. No longer will you have the sun for light of day. Nor for the brightness will the moon give you light, but you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and your God for your glory. Your sun will no longer set, nor will your moon wane, for you will have the Lord for an everlasting light and the days of your mourning will be over. How long will God's salvation last? Forever. Everlasting. Always. Continuous. Isaiah 61, this, I'll just confess, does not use the word light, but there's light all over it. And it's the very words that our Lord picked up in Luke chapter 4 when he returned to the synagogue in Nazareth and was asked to read from the scroll on that day or be a guest preacher that day. And he picked up and he turned to Isaiah chapter 61 and hear the light that came from the scroll of Isaiah through the mouth of the Messiah. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me. Because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and freedom to the prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. I have come today to preach, to offer salvation. That's what Christ was saying when he reads from Isaiah's scroll. That's what Isaiah is saying as the Lord, as the Spirit of the Lord puts these words into his mouth and speaks them into the heart of a people at this time, most likely in exile at a place where there is no hope, at a place where they could not think about being stable or whole or happy. God speaks and says, I am coming to release the prisoner and make all things that are wrong and crooked right and straight. Light, the prophet of light. The one who speaks to our hearts and says, God is not in darkness. God is not in confusion. 
God is not in those things that, that are, are always mysterious and always aloof, but God is most likely, most properly understood and experienced as the one who casts light upon our world. Light into the life and the tragedy of Israel and light into the life and tragedy of America. God does not leave or forsake or abandon. He shines upon us. I suspect that these words from Isaiah are pretty important to us. Pretty helpful to us in figuring out how we are to approach each day in every situation, in every choice, in every dilemma. You see, because if Isaiah is right, then light from God can change the world. Do we believe that? Remember, light is salvation. Do we believe that the saving grace of God can change the world? Or does it just change the people with a Christian heritage and who were lucky enough to stumble into church or be drugged into church by their parents? And so that light just changes us because we were in the right place at the right time. No. This light that Isaiah speaks about can change the world. And I would beg you to not in any way put things below that in parentheses that says something like, well, it can change the world except for, or except for, or except for. Just leave it as it is. This saving light of God, this, this saving grace of God can change all things that we know and experience. And use that convicting truth then to order the way in which we pray and live and choose and plan. If Isaiah is right, then this light from God will reveal our sin and the sinfulness that is within us. So it's not just light that shines on the world that helps us drive our cars in the right direction or know how to get out of bed and, and make our way to the place to put on clothes and begin to make coffee even before our eyes open. It's not just that illuminating light that Isaiah is speaking of and of which the Word of God points us towards. It's a light that, that shines right into the heart of the darkness that's in our life. It's important for those of us in our tradition, not just the Wesleyan holiness tradition, but the evangelical tradition, that we not get so busy in preaching at the sin in the world and in other people's lives that we neglect to care for the sin that's in our lives that the light of God is shining on and illuminating for us to deal with. For this light that Isaiah speaks was first spoken into the ears of the priests in his gathering. It's like going to a preacher's convention and beginning to preach on sin and watching us begin to squirm. Watching us respond to our PDAs as we get an important phone call from our secretary and head out the back door. This light from God shines into the sin and sinfulness in our lives. Now, sin is both actual and personal. I, I don't want to drive too far into that. But there is, is an act of sin and then there is the nature of sin. We know about that, don't we? That's the difference between sin and sinfulness. This light of God deals with both, both the act of sinning and the nature of sinfulness within us. 
both of which God's grace is able to conquer and crucify and resurrect within us. Remember, go back to the last slide that said, nothing is outside of the power of the salvation that God is giving and offering and showing to us. So therefore, even my sin, as big and great and as embarrassing and as troublesome as it is, is not greater than the grace of God. If Isaiah is right, light from God then must penetrate our entire life and then shine through us. Remember all those verses we kind of skimmed quickly through about you will be a light to the nations. The nations will respond to the light that has come and shining through you. It's exactly what, what Isaiah is saying here if he's right. And again, we do believe he's right, don't we? That this light of God that can conquer all things, that, that overcomes all things, and, and shines first and foremost into our individual lives to speak to the sin and sinfulness within us, then penetrates the depth and the hold of that sin within us and shines through us. Here's, here's what I think that really means and I think might be helpful for us in the American church context. We don't just experience God as if we were walking into and out of the light. We encounter him. The last church I passed around, we had a spotlight that was awkwardly turned, and if I wanted to make that, that point, I could step out of the light and into the light. I don't know if I can do that here or not. It was very powerful. But when we speak about the light of God, the salvation of God, the grace of God, we don't just experience it when we feel like it or when it's convenient or when we have the time or when it fits into our schedule or when we like the format or the delivery. The light of God shines down always and forever upon us. And always invites us to not just be aware of the light and know where the light is, but to walk in the light. I've got two preachers over there. How many New Testament passages could we pull out real quickly that, that uses those very words or the, those images? Don't just be aware of it. Walk in the light, right? Beyond those preachers, you, you people have attended church. You know that that's the powerful, a powerful theme in the ministry of Christ and the ministry of Paul and the ministry of Peter as they preach and teach and write to us. If Isaiah is right, this light that God has shown down, that God is shining down, that God is promising will forever be shining upon our world penetrates our sin, penetrates our problems penetrates those things that we can't figure out what to do or how to get around it or what to, we can do to change it. And it shines through us to remind us that we can't do anything. We can't change anything. But God can. But God will. But God wants to. Now, how, how do we know that Isaiah is right? Why was he so convinced of these words? Well, of course, the immediate response is, well, the Spirit of the Lord was upon him. Yes. But even the Spirit of the Lord doesn't force the prophet of God to act in a faithful, righteous way. Refer to Jonah if you want to debate that. Don't have to go very far in the prophets. I, Isaiah was convinced fully, thoroughly, 
that the salvation of God is seen and understood clearly as the light shining into the darkness because this was the way in which he encountered God early on in his ministry. Isaiah 6. This is the one that you probably thought of immediately when I said I'm preaching this morning from the book of Isaiah. Here's what Isaiah 6 says. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. And two he covered with his face, and with two he covered with his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, full of his light, full of his salvation. The foundation of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. And then said, then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined. Because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. My eyes have seen the light of God. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven forever. Interesting background story to the time in which Isaiah enters into the temple on this particular day, the year that King Uzziah died. Uzziah was king of Judah, for over 50 years. By most accounts was a good king, did good things, acted in a good kingly way. Towards the end of his reign as king, he decided that he wasn't just king of Judah and king of Jerusalem, but he probably had, by the nature of his tenure, kind of ascended a little higher in his rule and royalty and holiness, if you will. So on a particular day towards the end of his reign, he enters into the temple apart from the priests and makes his own sacrifice, symbolizing to all the worshiping people of Israel that not only do I not need a priest, but I am equal to or on the same plane with God. I'll, I'll do these ritual things, but, but in so many ways I consider myself your king and an equal to the God that we have preached and loved and served and followed and obeyed and the one who's provided for us all through these years. Well, scandalous. Immediately, leprosy broke out all over Uzziah's body. And he spends the remainder of his years in isolation. Still the king, but by the nature of the leprosy on his body, excluded from worship, really excluded from from public participation. And the priests in those years, having been usurped by the king, found themselves kind of unsure about their status and what they were to do and if they should offer sacrifices and, and if God would even hear and honor and receive their sacrifices at such a time. For years, the, the worship of God, the, the gathering in the temple was, was kind of hit and miss and kind of sketchy, if you will. Priests not knowing who they were to be and king not knowing why he did what he did and God wondering why the people the king were rejecting him so in the year that King Uzziah dies Isaiah a young priest goes up 
and has this encounter with God that suggests to him from that point forward, from that point in his ministry to every day after that, that he is a priest and prophet of the God Most High, the one who's known as Holy, Holy, Holy. The one whose glory and light and love and grace and mercy fills not just the temple of that room, but the whole earth, even a sanctuary like this now, 25, 3,000 years later. Isaiah preached of the light of God, prophet of light throughout all of his ministry, all of his years, not because he found it written down somewhere, not because one day it just kind of occurred to him this was a creative way to deliver this message that, that he had in it, and people may respond to it, but because he had encountered the light himself. And his eyes were open forevermore. And he no longer had thoughts of what he should do in light of the way the king had acted and in light of the way the priests were unsure of their role at this point. But from this point forward, he was to preach and tell and prophesy not just of the judgment and the coming of God to get the people who had disobeyed and rejected him, but he would tell all the world, every nation, every tribe, every people, that God is light. And in him there is no darkness. In him there is salvation, full and free, for all people, at all times, and in every situation. Praise be to God. John Newton, the writer of Amazing Grace, said this, There are many who stumble in the noonday, not for want of light, but for a want of eyes. Newton wrote Amazing Grace, that song that that stems from his occupation and business as a slave trader, seeing and experiencing the grace of God, and from that point forward, being a, a leader of the church, a, a spokesman, an inspirer, a songwriter of light, if you will, because his eyes were opened to see the light of God. Because his eyes were opened to the way in which God was revealing himself in his life, and in his time. How about you? Are your eyes open this morning? Can you see the salvation of the Lord in your life and in your church and in your world? If you say no, I, I can just tell you it's not because it's not there. Maybe because you're not embracing it. Because no government, no people, no sin can quench the light of God. It's shining all around us. Can you see it? How about you? Have you stumbled? Have you fallen? Are you uncertain? Are you unsure where the light of God fits into your life and how it changes your situation or your scenario? Are your eyes open this morning to God? I want to invite you to stand. Bow your heads and close your eyes this morning. In a moment, we're going to pray together and allow God to continue to work in our lives. This morning, I, I don't want you to listen to a song or even to a prayer in a few moments. I, I want to ask you to pray. Maybe as your eyes are closed, maybe for the first time in a long time, you will see the light of God. See where it fits and how it shines and illuminates the darkness.
in your life and in your world. And respond as the Holy Spirit speaks and leads you. The splendor of the King The disciple John, in the, the first of the three short letters that we have near the end of the New Testament, perhaps inspired by the Word of God through Isaiah, said this, this is the message we heard from Jesus and now declare to you, God is light and there is no darkness in him at all. So we are lying if we say we have fellowship with God, but go on living in spiritual darkness. We are not practicing the truth. But if we are living in the light as God is in the light, then we have fellowship with each other, and the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
If we claim we have no sin, we're only fooling ourselves and not living in the truth. But if we confess our sins to him, here's the promise. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Father, we thank you today for your word, for your truth. We thank you for the light of your grace in our lives and the light that has brought salvation to us. And Lord, I know that there are people here today within the sound of my voice that the light has, has spoken to them today. It's revealed something. It's reminded them of the need in their life where they need so desperately to see the light of your truth and your wisdom and your direction so they know what step to take. And I pray that they would lean on you for that today, Lord. There are others today, Lord, where your light has come and it has penetrated into our lives and it's reminded us of the sins that we've committed, the things that we've done that are disobedient to you, that are creating separation in our relationship with you and are bringing about destruction in our lives and our relationships. And we cry out to you today, Lord, because of those things and we beg your forgiveness. And we repent of those things. We turn away from them and turn to you. And God, there are those of us today, Lord, that the light of, of your truth has revealed to us that there is something within us and within, in the context of our relationship with you where we just continually find ourselves falling back and turning away from you and doing the things that we know that we shouldn't and that we've said we wouldn't do again. And Lord, we see the sinfulness that we live in. And we just confess today, Lord, that we need you desperately. We need to surrender our lives to you and allow your Holy Spirit to just come in and fill us up with your light and your love and, and your truth to, to change who we are. And that will help us change those daily decisions we make to live as people of light. Father, I thank you for this today. Father, there are many of us today that are here that are hurting and have troubles and struggles and need healing in our bodies and minds and spirits and, and homes and we need uh, direction for tomorrow. We're not sure exactly what's facing us when we walk out of this place today. And we just confess our need for you today, Lord, before we go. We confess that we need you more than anything and that we love you and we worship you and you alone deserve our praise. And God's people said, amen. Let's sing one more song of worship and devotion before we go in the light of the Lord today.